We are going to look this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, so if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn, turn there with me. We are, we are studying through this letter as a church, and um, I just want to read all the verses of chapter 13. It's just a short little parenthesis here between chapter 12 and chapter 14, but so integral to Paul's argument about spiritual gifts and ministry in the body of Christ. And he says in uh, verse 1, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, there will, there, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophecy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. As I mentioned at the outset, having laid out this general overview of spiritual gifts in chapter 12, Paul presses pause here in verse 31 and begins to exhort his readers and us to walk down the more excellent path. And that more excellent path is the path of Christian love. And it's not as if this path stands in opposition to uh, spiritual gifts. It's not like spiritual gifts is over here and, and love is, is over here. No, rather what we see here in chapter 13 is the path of love is the manner in which um, the Spirit-filled Christian uses those gifts that God has given them for the building up of the body and ultimately for the glory of God. And so, whether we realize it or not, chapter 13 then becomes vital for all of us as believers to be truly godly, fruitful disciples of Christ. You know, we know this chapter is, is one of a great poetic force. Its, its words are exalted. Its, its, uh, its poetic effort is, is just powerful. It's weighty and, and it, it may be even very sentimental to us. But the aim, we cannot forget, the aim of chapter 13 is far more, much more far-reaching than any kind of uh, warming of our hearts or stirring of our affections. This chapter is aiming to teach us to become a mature, spirit-filled uh, Christian who glorifies God in all that we do. This is, what, this is what this chapter is aiming at. Now, the Corinthian church thought they were those kind of people. Of course, as you know, if you've been around the Word of God for any length of time and you know of the Corinthian church, they thought they were a mature church. They thought they were a spirit-filled church. And that was largely because of their fixation on the miraculous gifts of tongues and, and prophecy and things like that. But what they thought was an asset, Paul shows them here in chapter 13, was actually a liability. 
It was a liability. What they believed was the genuine work of the Holy Spirit was really, at the end of the day, a carnal fixation on spiritual activity as an end in itself. And I think the Corinthian church then is a good reminder for all of us that confidence is no substitute for correctness. Confidence is no substitute for correctness. Lots of people are extremely confident in what they think about God, what they think about his word, um, but that doesn't necessarily make it true or right. And I think about what Paul said to, um, to his fellow, about his fellow Jews, his brothers, in, uh, his brothers uh, Jewish brethren. He says in chapter, Romans chapter 10, verse 2, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. In other words, they had confidence, but what they lacked was correctness. Or to bring it home for a, a believer, Apollos in Acts chapter 13, Luke's, Luke calls him a man of eloquence. He speaks of him as fervent in the spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. But, but what we learn as you read that section is that, that Apollos was only acquainted with the baptism of John. And so when Priscilla and Aquila find him speaking boldly in the synagogue, Acts says they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In other words, the man had confidence, but what he lacked was a fullness and a correctness to his theology. And so all it's to say is there's always more for you and for me to learn in the school of Christ. There is always more for us to learn. And uh, while we must have convictions and we, we take our stand on God's word as truth, we must be humble to recognize that our individual understanding of that truth and the application of it are always in need of growth and refinement this side of heaven. And that was the case in Corinth. They were enriched in chapter one, he says, in all speech and all knowledge, not lacking any spiritual gift. But there was one essential ingredient that was missing. There was something important that was absolutely necessary that was missing, and that missing ingredient is Christian love. And as he points out in verses 1 to 3, if we're missing that, if we do not have the love that he speaks of in this chapter, it doesn't matter whether we have the most spectacular gifts of speech, it doesn't matter if we possess the sum total of divine uh, wisdom and knowledge, on earth or even in heaven. It doesn't matter if we give our lives away in stunning acts of sacrifice and dedication. Without love, he says, it all counts for nothing. It profits us nothing. And when we speak of love, it's important for us to understand what does the New Testament mean when it speaks and uses this term love? It's not just the physical desire or positive emotions or solidarity directed toward uh, other people. When we hear Paul or John or, or Peter or, or anybody really in the New Testament, Christ, especially in the Gospels, speak of love, we need to remember that the theological weight is invested in that term that we sometimes overlook. There are two important theological realities that are, that are dialed into this term of love that we see here in this chapter. First, when Paul or John or Peter or Jesus himself speak of love, it is clear that they, they view it as something otherworldly. It is something that is na not natural. It is supernatural. Love is the power of the age to come uh, breaking forth in this present order. Love is heaven's life manifest in us on earth. 
As John says in 1 John 4, verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In other words, God in his essential, in his essential essence is love, and therefore the Spirit-filled life working itself out in those who are his beloved ought to be a life shot through with love, which is from above. So, as I've told our church, love is like a visitor from another world. It's heaven's life manifesting us on earth. But secondly, Christian love is above all a spirit-wrought attitude which chooses to place the welfare of others ahead of our own interests for God's glory. And every, every part of that little definition, that, that explanation is important. It is a spirit-wrought attitude. It chooses to place the welfare of others ahead of our own. And it does so for the glory of God. Biblical love, therefore, is inescapably centered on Christ and the cross. 1 John 4, again, verses 9 and 10, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the wrath bearer for our sins. The self-giving grace of God in sending His only begotten Son into the world to make atonement for our sin and to rescue us from the wrath to come, that is the highest and greatest demonstration of love the world has ever or will ever know. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, well, then we ought to love one another. So when Paul talks about love here in this chapter of love, we have to hold in the back of our minds these theological realities that love is heaven's life manifest in us on earth and it is, demonstrates itself in choosing to place the welfare of others above our own for the glory of God. The love that Paul speaks of here is not possible unless we have been born again. We must, and the reason is because it is heavenly in origin and it's centered on Christ. Christian love will never be found unless an individual's heart has been prepared by the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that that grows out of our uh, life that abides in God's love through faith in His Son. And if, if you can't, you cannot have the fruit of faith without the root to support it. And so he starts off here in verses 1 to 3 by pointing out that love is the one necessary thing and nothing, nothing can make up for its absence. That's why Paul concludes at the end of this letter in chapter 16, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Now up to verse 3, we've, we've kind of just briefly seen what happens when love is absent. It profits us nothing. It, it, it makes us nothing. But as we look at verses 4 uh, to 7, really being its own little section here, Paul unfolds for us what, looks like, what love looks like in, when it's present. When it's, when it's present. And there are, of course, a, a number of characteristics here that are kind of fired off rapidly, but some are stated in the positive, some are stated in the negative, but taken together, what they do is they, the verses 4 to 7 sketch out for us this beautiful picture of what love looks like in the heart of a believer who is mature and who is walking with the spirit walking in the spirit 
And there are certain characteristics, certain fruits that are just unmistakable. And I want to take some time this morning to look at just the first fruit of love at the beginning of verse 4. And that is that love is patient. Love is patient. I can't think of anyone who's been a part of our church for any length of time that has not uh, at some point in in, in that interaction shared the details of a strained relationship. That might be um, somebody in an extended family. It might be someone uh, in your own home, a spouse or a child. There, it might be uh, a strained relationship with a coworker or a neighbor or another church member. But, but if we're honest, all of us, all of us, at some point, are uh, have had or are having to navigate the the troubled waters of broken relationships. And almost always those relationships become strained and difficult because of some wound that we have received and experienced from that person, whether that's real or imagined. And and so if we're going to move toward other Christians, other believers, with uh, an eye toward building them up, which is really the theme of this whole section in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And if we're going to move toward unbelievers to bring um, the word of God to bear and sow gospel seed, we need to understand that love is patient. It is patient. And we're going to break this down into two by asking and answering two questions for our outline this morning. And that is, we're going to ask and answer the question, what is the root of patience? What's its nature? Why and how does love incline us to walk in it? And then lastly, secondly, what is the fruit of patience? What is the fruit of patience? What does it look like in the context of relationships in our lives? So I want to begin by looking at asking and answering the question, what is the root of patience? What is this? Literally, and I think the King James does a wonderful job of translating this, is um, verse 4, it says, love is patient, but you could, the King James says, love suffereth long, which I think is a great way to, to, to understand this term. That's really the heart of what Paul's getting at here. This term in the original language, it captures the idea of patiently enduring wrongs done to us by other people. Uh, someone who's patient is able by God's grace to steadfastly absorb the hurts and offenses of others, whatever those might be. Patience is commended by Paul throughout his letters as the fruit of, as the part of the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, of course, we see that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, the fruit of the Spirit, and he, he says, is love, joy, peace, and this term, patience. The same term he uses here at the beginning of verse 4. Or if you look over at Ephesians in verse 4, uh, Paul kind of begins that second half of the letter by saying, I, uh, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Or if you look over at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, he says the same thing. He says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. And there is this word, patience. So patience, long-suffering, is this God-given ability to absorb the injuries of others uh, perpetrated against us. Now that said, what are some of the ways that people might hurt us or injure us and test our patience? 
Well, uh, some might wound us by their thought life and their attitudes toward us. When we come to mind, um, they think poorly of us or they assume the worst in our actions and our motives. They, uh, maybe they unjustly hold us in contempt in their hearts and nothing we say or do can release us from that mental prison that they've placed us in. Some might nurture an envious heart. Uh, they might envy our position. They might envy our gifts. They might envy our relationships or maybe even our possessions. So people can wound us by the way they think about us and their attitudes toward us. Some might hurt us by their words. Kind of think of another category. Um, gossip. They might gossip about us. They might slander us as they speak to others about us. They might misrepresent our words or our actions. They might magnify our faults and ignore our virtues, being uh, overly harsh in their judgment. They might speak deceitfully about us and actually put words in our mouth that we've never even said. Now, sometimes people injure us not by their thoughts and attitudes or words, but by their actual actions. In the way that they relate to us, those in authority might lord it over us and take advantage of their superior position. Those who might uh, follow, those who follow might not properly honor and respect those above them on account of their position. Some are supremely selfish and they can only care about themselves and so are always insisting on having their own way. Others walk around with a prideful spirit and they look down their nose at others as inferior. Some might injure us, think of a fourth category, by holding on to the past. They might feed a grudge of past slights or wrongs, or they might intentionally return evil for evil. They deliberately, they might deliberately withhold those things that would bless us and and then, if they're really vindictive, press into those things which they know upset us or discourage us. I mean, on and on, we can think of a million ways that people can hurt us and injure us and, and test our patience and wound us. The question is, why and how then does love, Christian love, incline us toward this attitude of long-suffering? And that's what I want us to consider at the back half of this first point. What, how, why and how does Christian love incline us to be long-suffering with one another, to bear up under the countless ways people hurt us? I'll give you five kind of sub-points here relatively quickly. First, our love for God inclines us to imitate Him as our Heavenly Father. So our love for God inclines us to imitate him as our heavenly father. If you listen to how uh, Moses speaks, uh, records God's character in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, he says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. That's that term long-suffering and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is who God is. Or in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul asked uh, this question. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I mean, it's, it's, it's self-evident. This is who God is. God is by nature long-suffering. Think about the incalculable hurts and injuries 
the world perpetrates against God every single second of every day. Think about all the evil that his perfect knowledge takes notice of and how utterly offensive that must be to his perfect holiness. And then think about all the sin that you and I as believers still commit in thought and deed as we wrestle with the remaining vestiges of our sin. And then ponder about how God continues, in spite of all of that, to hold all things together by the word of his power. How he showers the world with mercy and causes the sun to rise on both the evil and the good and sending, sends rain on the just and the unjust. How he allows even the most rebellious sinners in this world to enjoy all the good things of life, food and drink, the joys of marriage and family, friendships and relationships, material stability, even prosperity, the psalmist says, the wicked prosper. I mean, when you stop and think about it, and I stop and think about it, God's patience is absolutely staggering. And in the same way that the love of a little child inclines them to follow in their father's footsteps. So we who are beloved children of our heavenly father are inclined to imitate him by being long-suffering toward one another. So God's love and his long-suffering toward us begs our imitation. Secondly, our love for God makes us humble. Our love for God works into our hearts humility. Our love for God exalts him. It rightly puts him in his proper place. And when that happens, we finally start to see ourselves in a true light. We are nothing before a holy God. And when we remember who we are, we we say we are just unworthy slaves. We'd be far, far less sensitive to rise up and respond when others hurt us when we have a low estimation of ourselves, a proper estimation of ourselves. But when pride and self-righteousness have free reign in our hearts, it can't, we, we can't help but hold on to every offense. We can't help but respond in kind to every slight. So our love for God works humility within to our, into our hearts. Third, our love for God acknowledges the providence of God in all the ways others might hurt us. We acknowledge that God's sovereign hand is involved in all of the ways that others may hurt us. Our, it quickens us to recognize that he and he alone is wise in directing all things after the counsel of his will. We understand that theologically, but we don't understand that practically. We don't live that practically. And while God is not in any way the author of sin, every hurt, every injury, every offense, every injustice perpetrated against us actually comes and is allowed by his sovereign hand. And when we get that, we are far more capable of bearing those things up and submitting to them with a quiet heart. We understand that while men might mean those things for evil, God, in his grace, is causing them, along with everything else he's doing around us, he is causing those things to work together for our good. Fourth, Our love for God sets our minds on heavenly things and it puts the injuries of others out of view. Our love for God sets our mind on heavenly things, putting the injuries of others out of view. When when the things of Christ occupy my mind and my heart and fill up my soul, when eternal things captivate our hearts, another person's injuries against us are put in the proper perspective. 
even the most significant offenses or hurts become momentary light afflictions that are, that are just going to pass away into an eternal weight of glory. When our love grows cold, though, we become very nearsighted. I'm nearsighted. I can see things up close just fine. Without my glasses, I don't see you. <laughs> and when, we are, when our love grows cold, we have perfect vision of everything up close on this earth. And everything on the horizon of eternity is just blurry and kind of nondescript. But love is like a pair of corrective lenses. It, it reverses that nearsightedness and allows the countless ways that people wound us to disappear so that we can see in beautiful clarity the glories that are to come. So our love for God sets our mind on heavenly things and, and makes those, those injuries and hurts that people perpetrate against us puts them in the right perspective and takes them out of view. And then fifth, our love not for God, but for others makes us far more willing to put to death resentment or revenge. Our love for other people makes us far more willing to put to death resentment or revenge. Common sense and scripture affirm that we're far more likely to look past the failures and faults of those whom we look up to, those whom we cherish, those whom uh, we admire, we, we look at, we're far more apt to cover those things and look past them than those we hardly know or those whom we're indifferent to. If you're a parent, you know, you'll put up with a lot more nonsense from your own kids than your neighbor's kids. If we're walking in love toward one another, it keeps us in the proper frame of mind so that we are able to endure the offenses of others without becoming resentful, without be seeking revenge. I mean, this is the root of patience. It is all of these things. What's the fruit of it? That's the second question we need to ask and answer this morning. What is the fruit of patience? We've considered the root of it, that love is long-suffering, the nature of it, and why and how love inclines us to it. What does it look like in the context of relationships on the ground? I'm going to give you four short sub-points here as well. First, love that's long-suffering refuses to retaliate in word or deed or even in our hearts. Love that is long-suffering refuses to retaliate in word, in deed, or in our very heart of hearts. We might be stating the obvious here, but when love is long-suffering and you're hurt or wounded by someone else, you don't become vengeful. You don't become um, uh, angry in your heart and respond in kind. We don't, we don't re reply with hurtful deeds, spiteful words. We don't feed a resentful spirit to gratify our flesh. All those things are just different flavors of revenge. When we're hurt, we refuse to do or say anything to exact our pound of flesh or even to get our ounce of flesh. Instead, we absorb it with a quiet heart and an undisturbed demeanor, and it doesn't alter the way we relate to them in any way. We don't get chippy. We don't become confrontational. We don't gossip about them or slander them to others tear them down. We simply entrust the situation to him who judges righteously. So love that's long-suffering refuses to retaliate in word and deed. I think of Proverbs 19 verse 11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger 
and it is his glory. This is our glory to overlook a transgression. That's incredible. Well, Romans 12, verse 17, Paul says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. Second, love that's long-suffering maintains a calm mind and heart. Love that is long-suffering maintains a calm mind and heart. We don't just refuse to retaliate in word and in deed, but we actually uh, keep our emotions in check as well so that they don't disturb our love for those who have offended us. We not only relate to them kindly and graciously, but we have a sincere heart toward them. I think that's important. We can put up a good front, but if our heart is not sincere in our love for them, that will break down very quickly. Rather than being angry, we, should, we, we might be filled with pity for how they've offended God. Because pity doesn't destroy our peace. P- pity doesn't destroy our composure. You know, some folks are like the surface of the water, the slightest breeze, a leaf, a pebble dropped into, the, into a still pond. What happens? Ripples out for hundreds of yards. But when love is long-suffering, we're like the solid ground. We're like the solid ground. It takes a lot of force to move and shake the ground. Those of you who've lived in California, understand that it takes a continent's worth of force to move the ground. And that's how we need to be. Proverbs 16, verse 32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules the spirit than he who captures a city. That's power. Third, love that is long-suffering doesn't stoop down to vindicate and defend itself. Love that is long-suffering does not stoop down to vindicate and defend itself. When other people hurt or offend us, a long-suffering person chooses to keep the peace by not taking the opportunities afforded to us to deliver ourselves from that injustice or to um, right that wrong, so to speak. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One, because our honor, our glory, our reputation, that doesn't matter. It just doesn't. God's glory, God's honor, God's reputation are what matter above all. And, and two, we do that because when we rise up to vindicate and defend ourselves, we are so much more prone to injure and hurt that person in response. And so what ends up happening is we add our own sin to an already sinful situation and therefore multiply the evil. I think Paul embodies this principle of long-suffering earlier in, in, Coloss- in, uh, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because in chapter 6, he points out he's, he, he's con- um, confronting them for taking one another to court and, 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 and dragging the name of Christ before the, the magistrate, if you will, and, and, and slandering Christ in the public sphere. And he says, he says, this is already a defeat for you, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? I mean, that's, that's the attitude we should embrace. And in our culture where 
where microaggressions and perpetual victimhood and, and childish pettiness are the norm, both outside and sometimes even inside the church. The Christian spirit sails above all of that. We're way, we have to sail above the fray in the gentleness of wisdom and refuse to stoop down and defend ourselves and respond to every injury done to us by other people. Fourth, love that's long-suffering endures offenses, both small and large, occasional and numerous. Love that is long-suffering endures offenses, both small and large, occasional and numerous. I, I think it's baked into the term. Long-suffering means that we, we would have to suffer for a long time to a high degree. That means that we don't just bear up under small offenses, but even serious offenses, large offenses that people might do against us. Uh, that means we don't just bear up under the occasional injury, but numerous and repeat, repeated and sustained injuries that people might do to us and uh, again and again. So it's not that we bear up under offenses for a season and then we just kind of draw a line in the sand and say, no more. No, that's, that's not what this is picturing at all. Instead, we are to bear them to the uttermost, even to the end if necessary. I mean, what did, Jesus, what did Peter say to Jesus? How, how long shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Uh, up to seven times? And Jesus' response was what? No, but up to 70 times seven. And let's face it, we live in a sin-cursed world. And the course of this world, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, among the sons of disobedience, alongside our remaining sin in our own hearts as believers, that will make hurts and offenses and injuries abundant. And so we, we shouldn't pretend like some strange thing has happened to us when someone sins against us. And I think sometimes we, we are shocked that people would sin against us. We have to come to terms with the fact that we live in a depraved world filled with depraved and non-glorified people and there will always be ample opportunity for us to be long-suffering. And that's why Peter said, above all, keep fervent, boiling over in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And if we must out of absolute necessity, defend ourselves or respond. Love that is long-suffering refuses to do so out of a spirit of vengeance, but instead turns its back on all harshness, all indecency, all rudeness, all spite, and we do everything in God's capacity not to injure the person who has injured us, to not return evil for evil. But even then, more often than not, we're more, more often than we're naturally comfortable with, we'd probably do better to just not respond at all and maintain the peace and the unity of that relationship. So we've seen the root of love that's long-suffering. We've seen the fruit of love that's long-suffering. Up to this point, someone might say, Jeff, you, you don't understand how this person has offended me. You don't understand how this person has hurt me. How, how relentless their, their injuries against me have been. And to that, 
I would direct you to the words of Jonathan Edwards as he asked these penetrating questions in his chapter on long-suffering in charity and its fruits. And I, I quote it to you because it shuts down our natural inclination to excuse ourselves from the divine standard of love. It's a long quote, but he says, Do you think the injuries that you've received from your fellow man are more than you have offered to God? Has your enemy been more base, more unreasonable, more ungrateful than you have been to the high and holy one? Have offenses been more heinous or aggravated or more in number than yours have been against your creator, benefactor, and redeemer? Have they been more provoking and exasperating than your own sinful conduct has been to him who is the author of all our mercies and to whom you are under highest obligations? And do you not hope that as God has up to the present, he will still bear with you in all of this? And that despite it all, he will exercise toward you his infinite love and favor? And do you not hope that God will have mercy upon you and that Christ will embrace you in his dying love though you have been an injurious enemy and that through his grace, he will blot out your transgression and all your offenses against him and make you eternally his child and an heir of the kingdom? And when you think of such long suffering on God's part, do you not approve of it and think well of it? And that it is not only worthy and excellent, but exceedingly glorious. Would you have liked God better if he had not born with you, but had long since cut you off in his wrath? And if such a course be excellent and worthy to be approved in God, why is it not so in yourself? Why should you not imitate it? Is God too kind in forgiving injuries? Is it less heinous to offend the Lord of heaven and earth than for a man to offend you? Is it well for you to be forgiven and that you should pray to God for pardon and yet you should not extend it to your fellow men that have injured you? He says these questions may sufficiently answer your objection. God be merciful to me, a sinner. In every and all objections to walking in love that is long-suffering, I would direct you to, to the words of the writer of Hebrews, who would say, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And then he says, consider, think upon him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And all that, he says, so you will not grow weary. This is the attitude we are to have as we walk in love. We were called for this. We were called for this. First Peter 2, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. In spite of all the ways he was sinned against, he committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled as the holy, sinless son of God, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he can do this, we can do this, because he himself 
and bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, we were healed. Let's pray. Father, may we embody the spirit of loving kindness, of long-suffering that we've read about and studied so briefly this morning. Lord, as we think about all the ways that we have sinned against you, all, all the offenses that we constantly bring before your holy presence, and yet you love us with an undying love, and you give us all these wonderful things, including the gift of one another in your church. We pray that we would walk in love, that we would build one another up. We pray that we would be quick to cover those things. Will we keep fervent in our love one for another? May you work that in our hearts, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.